a little boy attended his first symphonic concert. He was excited to see the splendid hall and all of the beautiful people in their, in their formal finery, the, uh, the large and enthusiastic orchestra captured and riveted his attention. But one particular musician uh, grasped his heart. He, he noticed that this particular musician uh, stood um, behind all the rest of the musicians and, and he did very, very little. But at particular times, he... He, he stepped forward and he grabbed the cymbals and he crashed them together and made an awesome sound that filled the auditorium. After the concert, backstage, his parents took him to talk with this particular musician, the cymbalist. And boldly, the little boy asked him, Mr., what do you have to know to play the cymbals? Gentleman smiled and he said, Well, not very much. However, you do have to know when. It's the ubiquitous question that so frequently is on our lips. When will it stop? When can I go? When will it come? I want to know. The psalmist lamented, Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? The prophet Habakkuk echoed the same. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. So to the martyrs, silenced for their faith, we read in Revelation 6, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When will you come? We don't always know God's timing. But what we do know for certain is that he has a time. There will come a time when every wrong will be righted. Every pain, every sorrow will be addressed. Let me give you one example from the Old Testament. For 400 years, the Israelite nation, not much of a nation when they went down, for 400 years, they were in Egypt, Egyptian captivity, slaves of the Pharaoh. They were his labor force. And they, they, they languished under that oppression for four centuries. And they wondered, how long, O Lord? And they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. 
but he did not come generation after generation after generation. How long, O Lord? What they had forgotten was that on this particular occasion, God told them how long. We read about it in Genesis chapter 15. Way back in the time of Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Verse 16 tells us why. In the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What the Israelites failed to understand, maybe they simply failed to remember, was that God, who is in control, whose timing is perfect, was working on the, the, the world stage. He was preparing the musicians for the concert that would release them from their Egyptian captivity and deliver them into the promised land. Let me give you another example, this time from the New Testament. The first century Jews were were feeling desperate, oppressed. They struggled under Roman domination. And they pled to the Lord for deliverance, wondering why is the Lord so long in bringing us Messiah? How long, O oh Lord? What they didn't realize was all of the things God was doing on the world stage to prepare the musicians for that concert that would bring deliverance to God's people. Consider these facts. It was because of Rome and their strong arm that the Greek language was preserved throughout the world as the lingua franca, the business language, so that when the gospel message was proclaimed, it could be heard and understood throughout the world. It was because of the strong arm of Rome that they conquered people and with that conquering brought an enormous roadway system throughout the empire. It brought about the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And it was because of those roadways and because of the peace that was throughout the land 
because of Rome's strong arm, the gospel went unimpeded into a peaceful world. And the messengers bearing that news would be able to use the Roman road system to bring that message to a needy world. It was because of the strong arm of Rome that the pagan religions of the Greeks and the Romans were, were seen throughout the world, and they were seen to be ineffective. But what the world saw in those idolatrous religions was a continual blood offering. It made the world ready for that one perfect blood offering in Christ. And though the people were languishing because of Roman oppression, what they didn't see was that God was working behind the scenes to prepare the world for the deliverer. We're in the fourth gospel. This morning we open up chapter 7. And simply by way of review, let, let me give you just a couple of, of um, uh, milepost markers, if you will, that John sets out before us. In, in John chapter 2, we find Jesus initially in the land of, of, of Galilee, and there he performs his first sign, making wine out of water. And then we find in, um, uh, it, it, at the last part of the, uh, of the, of the uh, chapter, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. Chapters, the end of chapter 2, chapter 3, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Chapter 4, he passes through Samaria into Galilee Chapter 5, there was a feast of the Jews requiring that Jesus travel back to Jerusalem. Many scholars think that this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 6, we find Jesus in Galilee, and all of the, the conversations and events that took place in chapter 6 were in Galilee. Now in chapter 7, Jesus is back in Jerusalem. Now, the, the, the conversations and events that took place in chapter 5 all took place in one day. The events and com conversations that took place in chapter 6 took place over a couple of days. There's massive gaps in the chronological record. And the Apostle John is not interested in giving us a travelogue of where Jesus is and what Jesus said every day. He's simply giving us Snippets, just enough to accomplish his objective, to help us see, to help us understand, to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there is hope, there is deliverance only in him. So between John chapter 5 and John chapter 7, there is a full year 
Very little recorded in John's Gospel of what took place in that year. This morning we look at chapter 7, and it's, we're just going to get to the fir- through the first 13 verses, which is really an introduction to the events, the conversations that take place following that. Read with me. Chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were were, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Point number one, God's timing will not be governed by error. Verse one opens, after these things, after the, the uh, event, that, and this, uh, this took place only over a couple of days, uh, and it's not necessarily immediately as if it was just last week. At some point prior, while Jesus was in Galilee, he fed the 5,000, and, and then um, after that had a conversation with a number of Jews in the synagogue regarding himself being the bread of life. After these things, Jesus was walking, imperfect tense, meaning he continued to walk. After these things, Jesus was continuing to walk. He stayed in Galilee. Why? He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. I direct your attention back to chapter 5, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, was, was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So for reasons that they would have, have uh, argued were blasphemous, 
his, his comments were blasphemous uh, for reasons that, that they said, well, he, he continues to, to break the Sabbath by doing work on the Sabbath, by healing on the Sabbath. The Jews sought to, to kill Jesus. And Jesus knew this. He knew this was their, their, their murderous intention toward him. So he intentionally stayed away. Why? Because his time had not yet come. Was he fearful of going and confronting the Jews? No, absolutely not. Was he afraid of dying? No, he knew that that was God's plan. He simply stayed away because he knew right now is not the time. He was to die as was prescribed, planned by the Father. He was to die at Passover because he was the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. This was tabernacles. This is the Feast of Booths. This is six months too early. Verse 2 points to, to the beginning of tension. And it says, Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Let me pause here for a description and an explanation. First, a description of what's, what, what, what's happening here. The feast of booths is also known as the feast of tabernacles. And uh, literally, it, it, uh, it refers to a tent. So, so during this particular feast, which is a week-long feast, uh, the, the Jews lived in tents. It was, it was, uh, it was the great camp-out weekend for the Jews. Uh, week-long camp-out, if you will. It was reminiscent of what the Jews experienced after the Exodus, where for 40 years they wandered, living in tents, in make-do temporary shelters. And so in commemoration of God's provision for them during that 40-year period, not only did they have a roof over their head, albeit a temporary one, God provided them with food every day, albeit rather boring in that it was the same thing every day. And although they had to wear the same clothing and the same shoes uh, for 40 years, sorry, no outlets to go and buy something new, God provided for them in every way. Their shoes did not wear out. Their clothes did not wear out. They always had food to eat. They always had a place to sleep. God provided for them every step of the way for that 40 years. And the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles was in part a remembrance, a living out again of God's provision. Now, if you look at Exodus chapter 23, there the feast is called the Feast of the Ingathering. This particular feast took place in the fall of the year, at the end of the Jewish calendar year. It took place 
when the grapes were harvested, when the olives were harvested. So there was this, this, um, th- this physical reminder of God providing for them by means of the harvest. Now, there, there are a number of layers on the, the whole Feast of Tabernacles. You, you will remember that, that uh, God instructed Moses as a part of the whole exile and the giving of the law, that Moses was to erect a tent called the Tent of Meeting. It was called officially the Tabernacle, the Tent, the Tent, where God met with his people, where God dwelt among his people. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was was a picture of what God was going to do perfectly, ultimately, finally in Messiah. Messiah would be the one who would perfectly provide for his people. And Messiah was the one who would be the resident divine dweller among God's people. Oh, there's so much symbolism, so much to be taught at this time, all of it focused on Messiah, on Christ Jesus himself. Now here's another layer. Exodus chapter 23 says that there are three feasts that all male Jews had to attend. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Two in the spring of the year. One in the fall. Every year, every male. Well, not every male went. And according to Josephus, um, first century Jewish historian, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, the Feast of Ingathering, uh, those are all synonymous words. Uh, according to Josephus, the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, was the best attended and, and most popular feast in, among the first century Jews. But Jesus, as a law-keeping Jew who never violated God's law, had to go to Jerusalem for the feasts, including this one. So there's the tension in verse 2. He wanted to avoid the, 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 the scrutiny of the Jews, the religious leaders that hated him, charging him with blasphemy, charging him with being a Sabbath breaker. He wanted to avoid them, yet at the same time he was required by Mosaic law to go to Jerusalem for the feasts, including this one. Knowing that tension, second page of your notes, Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers, come onto the scene, step up to Jesus, and give him some advice. Now, it, is, um, it, it was common knowledge in the first century that Joseph, husband of Mary, was the biological father of Jesus. Now, we know from divine revelation that that's not accurate. 
It was the Holy Spirit that impregnated Mary. Jesus is the God-man. He is simply not the result of human procreation. Joseph was, however, the biological father of four boys and some daughters. We have the names of the four boys in Scripture. I put the notes, the references in your notes, Matthew 13, Mark chapter 6. James, Jude, a.k.a. Judas, Joseph, a.k.a. Joseph, Joseph Jr., if you will, and Simon. Those, were, those four were Jesus' half-brothers. They're simply referred to as his brothers here. Now, I want you to notice in verse 5, before we look at what the brothers uh, encouraged Jesus with their, with their counsel, I want you to notice verse 5 says that his brothers... We're not believing in him. Now, we don't know anything about uh, Joseph or uh, Simon. We know that James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. <laughs> he, he, was, he was the head elder over the, the uh, Jerusalem council. He was the one who wrote the New Testament book bearing his name, James. And Jude, he was one who contributed to the New Testament. He has a book that bears his name as well. It appears from Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that these four men came to faith that their half-brother, big bro Jesus, was indeed the God-man, the Messiah of the world. They came to faith in Christ after the resurrection. But right now, they are unbelievers. So take that, put, put that in your mind as you listen to their counsel to their bigger brother. Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You remember what happened at the end of chapter 6? Because of the hard saying of Jesus where he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood of course we know that jesus was not speaking literally he wasn't advocating cannibalism he was speaking metaphorically he was he was encouraging people to ingest him to believe on him but this was a hard saying for people that were looking for a physical Messiah, a physical kingdom. Uh, they, they had no understanding, no concept, no frame of reference that Jesus was speaking in, in spiritual terms. They thought he was speaking in purely physical terms. In this, because of this hard saying, it says in chapter 6, verse 66, that 
Many of the disciples, those were, these, are, these are simply followers of Jesus, physical followers, looking for things that Jesus would, would do for them, feed them free health care and the rest. Um, many of those disciples withdrew, were not walking with him anymore. And so the brothers come alongside Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we, we want you to be successful. They were unbelievers. But whatever you're seeking to do, whatever big and splashy thing you're looking to do, you, you are able to attract a lot of people. We know that, Jesus. Listen, you've had a large defection of people. We all know that. We've all seen it. Jesus, this is our counsel to you. Go up to the feast. Travel with the pilgrim caravan, like everybody else. And as you're going, do your, do your stuff. Do, do your thing. Perform all these miraculous signs. It's okay to show off a little bit. Man, you got the power. You got the charisma. You, you got it all together. You're going to win back these people if you do this. So, so, so go with everybody up to the feast. You, you'll, be the, you'll be the miracle worker. You'll be the keynote speaker. You'll be the headliner. You'll be the guy. We don't know the, the motivations of the, of, of, of the, uh, of the brothers. Uh, maybe, maybe they were, maybe they were looking to, to take advantage of their relationship with Jesus. Thinking, well, if he's successful and he gets the applause and the money that comes with it, because we're brothers, he's going to show us preferential treatment, right? We don't know if, if that was a part of their thinking. Um, but we do know Jesus' response. Verse 6. My time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. Meaning, you can go up to the feast anytime you want. You do not have a target on your back. You can come and go at your pleasure. I can't. I know I have a target on my back, and they're going to shoot at that target, and they will hit the target, and I will die. But this, this feast, this time in Jerusalem is not the time. This is not the God-ordained, God-appointed time for my death. That will come, but not now. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Over in um, John chapter 15, uh, verse 19, Jesus says, the, the world loves its own. These 
brothers were of the world. There weren't believers. Uh, they were um, sympathetic to Jesus, wanted to be helpful to Jesus, but um, these, uh, these, these, these men were, 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 were of the world. Now, J Jesus um, uh, draws a, a very bold line between himself and the world. He exposed the world. He renounced the world. He spoke words of condemnation against the world because their deeds were evil. And he says of his brothers, guys, you are on the other side of that line. Verse 8, so he says to them, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things, verse 9, Jesus stayed in Galilee. Now, if the text ended right there, you might think, uh, wow, Jesus did break the law. Uh, he was required to go to Jerusalem for the feasts, uh, this being one of them, and, 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 and he did not. But that's not the end of the story. The point here is that God's timing will not be governed, will not be regulated, will not be stipulated um, by error. As much as the disciples, I'm sorry, as much as the brothers wanted Jesus uh, uh, to, uh, to, to prosper, um, they weren't able to, to twist Jesus' arm and, and make him do their will. That'll never happen. God will always do his timing, his will in his timing. Point number two, God's person will temporarily be maligned by error. Verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in Secret. Okay, listen, listen, maybe in different words, to what was happening, what, what the brothers were counseling Jesus to do. They said to Jesus, go up to the peace, go up to the feast publicly. Make yourself known. Step out. Accept the microphone at the podium and announce to the people your presence, do your, do your special miracle stuff, whatever that is, um, so that the people will come back and follow you. And Jesus says, no, that's not my way, for this is not my time. He went up to the feast 
but not as they wanted him to. He went out, he went, he went up privately. Covertly. Surreptitiously. Secretly. Under the radar, if you will. He didn't want to bring attention to himself because of the religious leaders. In Mark chapter 9, we find another um, occasion where Jesus responded in this kind of under-the-radar manner. Chapter 9, verse 30 of Mark's gospel. It reads, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know about it. So there, there were uh, more than one occasion where Jesus was moving in a secretive manner, if you will, and not publicly, for his time had not yet come. Beginning at verse 11 in our text, we find uh, three different uh, groups of people, all of them having an incorrect assessment of who Jesus was. Verse 11 reads, So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? Now, all of these people, well, the vast bulk of them anyway, were Jewish. But when the Apostle John speaks of the Jews, he's frequently speaking of the religious leaders. And here is one of those examples. The religious leaders were looking for Jesus at the feast. Why? Mosaic law required it. They expected him to be there. And they didn't find him doing the kinds of things they had heard about him doing in Galilee and had previously seen him doing in Jerusalem. And they asked the question, where is he? No answer. Jesus is there. Jesus is working. But he's not working in a way so as to heighten everyone's awareness of his presence. Verse 12, second group of people. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Now, they may have meant that he was a a morally righteous individual. It could also mean that, they, that, that he was good in the sense that he, he brought benefit to the people around him. He fed people. He uh, cast out demons. He healed the sick. Um, th- these were good things that Jesus did. And so in that sense, he was a good man. But to simply say with a period at the end of the sentence that Jesus is a good man is to miss who he was. He was far more than just a good man, more than just a good moral man, more than just a a good um, bring you benefit kind of man. He was the God man. 
There's another group of people, end of verse 12. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. They said he, he is, he's, he's a, a deceptive man, a charlatan, a huckster, a, um, a, 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 a somebody that is, is looking to, to bilk the masses out of their money. No. <laughs> Jesus is a little bit more than what they thought. His, his identity was temporarily hidden. Verse 13 reads, No one was speaking openly for fear of the Jews. Here again, uh, John uses the phrase, the Jews, to speak of the religious leaders. And th- they had such a vice-like grip on spiritual thought in the first century that these people in the crowd that were confused about the identity of Jesus, they didn't even have the opportunity to to openly discuss among themselves, who is this guy? His identity was temporarily hidden, but only for a time. Scripture tells us that in God's timing, Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a time when he will be perfectly understood by every, every being on planet Earth, every being who has ever lived. After the great resurrection, we will all know who he is. By way of application, let me, let me uh, suggest a couple, couple things for you to think about. First, with regard to the circumstances in your life, you don't know the timing. You don't know God's timing. You don't know what what God is expecting, what he is going to do. But we can trust him whose timing it is. Isaiah says, "Mm, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. And I might add, our timing is not God's timing. Scriptures are replete with examples and exhortations and revelatory propositional statements that declare to us that that God is in control of all things. All things. Even the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things in your life. God is still in control. And his timing is perfect. What sometimes we, 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 we fail to wrap our mind around 
is that truth that God is working on the world stage, bringing all of his musicians together for the concert of the ages. You might think to yourself, God, I'm here in the back. All these other musicians have stuff to play, beautiful music to bring out of their instruments. And here I'm stuck in the back, counting rest notes. That's what a symbolist does. But there will come that time when the timing is right for you to play, for you to contribute. God's timing is perfect. He will provide for us every step of the way. Think of the Feast of Tabernacles and all that it promised, all that it, 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 it rehearsed of, of God's provision, of God's, God's uh, presence there amongst the people. It's all realized for us in Christ. Second point of application. Because we are confident that God is in charge, that God is the sovereign, that God's calling the shots, that God is working on the world stage because we are confident of that. We can live today in fullness without fear. You know, one of the great, uh, I, I, I don't know, I, one of the great verses that Christians go to with great regularity is Romans 8.28. We know. We know a certainty. We know with assurance. We know that God causes all things all things to work together for good as he defines good for those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose this verse is not written for the hoi polloi the, the masses of people unbelievers mm. because all things are not working out for their good. They will experience condemnation. But we know that those who love God, who, who are called according to his purpose, we, we know that God is working all of all things. Even those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things. God is working all things together for our eternal good 
It's all focused in Christ. It is all designed to make us like Christ. I can live today to the full without fear because I know this God who's doing that kind of work in me through the difficult circumstances in my life. Cartoonist Bill Keane was well known for his syndicated comic series, Family Circus. He said this, Yesterday's the past. Tomorrow's the future. But today is gift. That's why it's called the present. Live it to the full. Live it without fear. Because we know him who has it all in control. We, we may not know the when. We may not know the why. But we know the who. Let's pray. Our blessed God, we thank you for the assurance, the assurance of the ages, the assurance of Scripture, that you are in control of all things. We humbly bow before you as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Find us faithful, eager to serve you in all circumstances. We find our joy and our delight in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray.